you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. From the Home Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, May Martinez. The city of Los Angeles has decided where it's going to spend money that the LAPD will not be getting. Councilman Curran Price joins us to share what the spending plan is and how they all got there. Plus, why getting California farm workers access to the vaccine has been a slow process with deadly consequences. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up, Hollywood is bringing production back to Los Angeles in a major way. We'll talk about the what and the why in about 20 minutes. But first, months after protesters around the world took to the streets to demand racial equity and deeper investments in communities of color, the city of Los Angeles is finally putting its money where its mouth is. Yesterday, the city council finalized an $88 million plan to devote more resources to things such as youth programs, nonprofit services, neighborhood beautification initiatives, and more. Now, the initial idea first ran into a speed bump late last year when Mayor Eric Garcetti issued a rare veto. But city council members yesterday overrode the veto, the veto and then reworked their original plan to address some of his concerns. Now, tell us some more about how this money will be spent and perhaps maybe on your very own block, we have with us L.A. City Councilman Curran Price. His district covers much of the areas of South Los Angeles that hugs the 110 freeway. Councilman, welcome. Thank you. First off, okay, $88 million for one of the biggest cities in the country, the second largest city in the country. Is that enough? Well, no, it's not enough, but it certainly is a start. It's a down payment, and it's an indication that we're serious about reimagining uh, public safety and making resources more available in underserved areas of our city. Uh, you know, the, the idea of, of uh, the $88 million being divided amongst the areas in most need uh, was something that the, the council adopted. In fact, uh, the, the highest uh, uh, census tracts of poverty uh, are really the guiding force. It's not a geographic determination or, or an area determination. Um, but with meetings I had with my with my constituents, mm-hmm. with town halls, uh, a variety of, uh, of other uh, outreach programs, it was clear. Uh, citizens wanted something related to homelessness, wanted youth development, yeah. unarmed responses for nonviolent calls. They wanted to see uh, these funds used in the community in ways that they hadn't been before. And Councilman, we're going to get to like where the money's going to be spent in just a minute, but I want to go back really quick to what you said. You called it a down payment. Uh, every time I've put a down payment on anything, <clears throat> Councilman, I've I've basically committed to more money later or soon. So is this the first of more money that's that will be to come on these kinds of projects? Well, we hope so. Uh, you know, the council is going to be considering a, a budget. The mayor's going to be proposing a budget. We're going to be adopting a new budget. Uh, and I hope that this budget uh, will reflect some different spending priorities. You know, we took the extraordinary action of taking $150 million from the police uh, department uh, and uh, as a way of indicating our concern and a desire to allocate these, these resources uh, in a better manner. We've done a number of things uh, with those funds. The largest chunk uh, is this $88 million that's been designated for uh, the community. So we're looking forward to getting that money out. Now, that community, though, is only in three of the city's 15 districts. Uh, one of those uh, is uh, your own. So why is that? Well, I, you know, three of the poorest <laughs> districts in the city. Remember, this is supposed to be alleviating poverty. This is uh, not designed to uh, help everybody who is uh, having struggles, but to focus on those communities that have been neglected over a period of time. And the the hardest hit uh, districts just happen to be the 8th, 9th, and 10th uh, districts where they are the highest uh, 
rates of poverty, uh, the high rates of, of uh, dropouts, uh, services not being provided in a way that has met up with the need. But Councilman, there are poor people all over the, the city of Los Angeles. Absolutely. And, 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 and granted, this is just a pilot effort. This is not a way that's going to be done forever. Uh, this is an initial cut. Uh, I'm sure there are going to be some revisions and, and uh, some different types of uh, allocations, perhaps. Uh, but I think it's significant that we are focusing on the poorest areas first. Uh, so it's not just a uh, uh, plan to help anybody who is in need. It's targeting these resources uh, into areas that have been neglected historically and who have the most need. We're talking to L.A. City Councilman Kern Price. Uh, all right. So how about some examples on how you see this money being uh, envisioned and, and spent? What are so just uh, maybe a few things that your residents will be seeing sure. heading to their doorstep in the next year? <clears throat> Well, we were happy to allocate uh, money for uh, uh, the creation of unarmed crisis response teams for nonviolent calls. We know that frequently uh, when people get calls for homelessness or called for mental health related issues, uh, we call the the police. And so we're going to be looking at how we can can create a uh, non-unarmed response team for these kinds of calls. So we're going to be working on that. We've also allocating additional money for community intervention workers. Again, helping to reduce the violence in our neighborhoods, doing the outreach uh, with the organizations, individuals that can really make a difference. We're, we're allocating money for safe passage programs to help monitor and create uh, safe passages between schools and parks, again, with our youth. But we're most excited, most excited about a guaranteed uh, basic income pilot program uh, that would, uh, benefit uh, single parents in our district. Uh, Specifically single parents? Specifically single parents? At this point, yes. Single parents is the the target. The mom who's got a couple of kids or the dad who's got the kids. Uh, We hope to identify 500 uh, such families uh, in the district. We want to uh, give them an allocation of $1,000 a month for a year. Mm -hmm. And we think that that can be life-changing. And so we're excited to attempt the experiment here in uh, L.A., here in my district, uh, and, and, and see the results uh, in, an, in an effort to replicate it uh, bro- more broadly throughout the city. Now, the idea to direct funding in this way has some fans, such as a Black Lives Matter L.A. co-founder, Melina Abdullah. Here's what uh, she told us. With Black people bearing the brunt of what's happening in terms of the health pandemic and the economic fallout, as well as violence within our communities, both at the hands of police, but also because of under-resourcing, we need those dollars to go directly to Black communities. Now, there's been some grumbling from other city council members on what geographic areas of the city will be seeing stuff like uh, you just mentioned, Councilman. What's your response to them? Because as I mentioned before, there's poor people all over the city of Los Angeles. There's also black people all over the city of Los Angeles that uh, won't be seeing the benefits of this. Yeah, well, again, this is uh, certainly an experiment. Uh, It's going to be a a target, a pilot project. Um, We know that there are great needs citywide and in, in many other districts as well. Uh, my district though happens to have census tracts of the poorest people, of black and brown. Uh, and I wanna make sure that those resources are made available in a way that we haven't seen before. Uh, and so, and, we, and again, it's, it's, it's not perfect. Uh, it's not going to be the end all, be all, but it is a start. It's an important start and a way for us to gather some data, gather some information uh, and see how it works in our environment on the ground. Now, when Mayor Garcetti vetoed the council's first plan, what did you think? And, and are you happy with the compromises you had to make to override the veto? Yeah, well, you know, I was, I was certainly a little, a little disappointed. Uh, I didn't agree with, uh, uh, with the, uh, the veto. In our district, for example, we uh, hadn't proposed any of the uh, projects that he cited uh, in, his, uh, in his veto, uh, uh, projects around uh, uh, the... Uh, infrastructure, streets and roads. Ours was always focused on, on providing uh, services, uh, but it did give us a chance to rethink uh, projects and programs. And I think it made, it made us come back with a stronger proposal, one that included the uh, universal basic income, for example. And ultimately, I, you know, the, the mayor subsequently has indicated his support for the revised plans that were presented. Uh, and so I think we're moving forward in a, in a very positive way. 
you know, when we talk about how to improve the lives of people of color in L.A., budgets and money is just uh, one side of the coin. And, and we've been talking in the past several months about police reform. Today, it happens to be the uh, 30th year since the beating of Rodney King by uh, LAPD officers. Um, Council member, where does the effort on police reform stand right now, specifically with the department that you deal with the most directly, the LAPD? Well, I think, you know, the, the department is, is in, uh, in transition and in, in reform. It's certainly not the police department that existed uh, when the Rodney, the Rodney King beating occurred. There's certainly been some changes. Uh, there have been uh, some improvements, uh, better relations uh, in the community, in the police, with the police in the community. But there needs to be more. There needs to be better. There needs to be more since we still are subject to too many stops, still subject to too uh, uh, unlawful use of force. Uh, and then we just uh, have a lot of work to do. Are, are you worried at all, uh, council member, about possible no. resentment uh, when it comes to this money that it's not going to be spent on the LAPD being spent on the communities that they are going to be in? Well, the resentment is certainly not going to be from our community. <laughs> you know, we welcome these additional resources and are going to use them very effectively. Uh, but we know that, uh, you know, there are those who feel the uh, police should not be um, cut at all. That, uh, that their services are sacrosanct, and uh, and we cannot do any, anything uh, but have armed responses. And we just don't agree with that. We think there's a there's a rule room for unarmed crisis response teams, as I suggested earlier. Uh, you know, when the, when there's an accident, uh, you know, I don't think you have to send four or five police cars uh, out to that scene to to uh, to deal with it, uh, issues around homelessness, mental health, you know, are certainly better handled, we think, by professionals in those fields. So I think we're looking at, and the police too, are looking at ways to um, refocus their uh, services, uh, shift uh, their their uh, use of, uh, of uh, armed responses, certainly, uh, and be more sensitive to the concerns and needs of the community that you're serving. Finally, one more thing, uh, Councilman. The work to pass this most recent budget took months after the conversation first started. However, uh, Black Lives Matter co-founder, L.A. co-founder, Melina Abdullah, told us uh, this. We're also looking at the bigger step, which is what will happen with the 2021-2022 budget, where there's a lot more on the line, and we want to be thoughtful, courageous, visionary, and grounded in community. As we mentioned before, uh, you know, this is a down payment, as you as you call it. Uh, is that where the commitment for more money will come? And how much uh, of a certainty do you think that is? Well, yeah, I think I think it will. I, I think uh, uh, the mayor is going to be proposing a budget that reflects that. I think uh, the city council uh, in reviewing the budget is going to have that in mind, making sure that expenditures are, are more in line with our values. Uh, and so the idea of funding uh, programs associated with uh, unarmed responses or community intervention uh, or the guaranteed basic income, uh, I think, are going to really surface uh, to the top in terms of alternative ways of using our resources. So I'm excited about the prospects, excited about what we can do, and excited about the leadership uh, that's shown by the city of Los Angeles in this regard. Uh, the Guarantee Basic Income Program, for example, would be the largest such program in the United States uh, and the only program funded solely through public money. Mm. Uh, but we think there's a chance to really impact citizens who uh, are in poverty, uh, who are struggling, uh, who need a hand. And we can do it in a way that uh, is respectful, uh, is sensitive and effective. And, and that's what we intend to do. That's Los Angeles City Councilman Curran Price. Councilman, thank you very much. California's farm workers have been in a vulnerable spot the moment the pandemic began. They toiled in crowded workspaces, travel in crowded vehicles, and considering the migratory nature of the workforce, they really have no way to know how much the virus has moved around with them. Making farm worker vaccine access a priority. That's next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. 
Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Martinez. COVID-19 has done a lot of damage in California's farming communities. And while the people who pick the food we eat are considered essential workers, the agricultural industry says not enough is being done to protect and vaccinate its workers. Governor Gavin Newsom on Friday pledged to increase vaccine supply to farm working communities. Let us never take for granted our farm workers, our ag workers, and all of those individuals that make it possible to lay claim to our status as a breadbasket to the world, not just the United States. Thing is, though, other barriers do remain in the way before our local farm workers are fully protected from the virus. Here to tell us about the conditions facing farm workers in the pandemic, we have with us Diana Telefson Torres, Executive Director of the United Farm Workers Foundation. Welcome, Diana. Thank you for having me. Manuel Pastor is a distinguished professor of sociology at the University of Southern California. He currently directs the USC Equity Research Institute. Manuel, welcome back to you, too. Siempre un placer. And Nadia Lopez is the Latino communities reporter for the Fresno Bee, and she's been reporting on farm workers and vaccine access. Nadia, welcome to you as well. Hi, nice to be here. All right, uh, Deanna, let's start with you. Uh, Both coronavirus cases and deaths have hit farm workers harder than other workforces. Can you tell us about the working conditions and demands on farm workers that contributed to to such high rates? Yes, well, farm workers are working side by side often, depending on the type of crop that they're working in or if they're in a packing house. Additionally, many farm workers don't have their own vehicles, so they're traveling along with their colleagues, often who don't live with them. So we know that farm workers not only are traveling long distances with others in very confined spaces, obviously, in a vehicle, they're also often working together. They also are living in different types of conditions for H-2A guest workers who are coming in from outside of the country. uh, Often they're living in quarters that include other workers. In addition to what we've seen is a lack of compliance on the ground for safety measures throughout the pandemic. Their foremen or for women were not providing them with the appropriate masks. Um, Workers are telling us that sometimes they don't even have soap in the bathrooms. So it is uh, not the best of situations, I must say. So just about every possible danger, uh, farm workers are, are right there, right in the line of fire for every possible contact with the coronavirus, it sounds like. Uh, Nadia, you spoke with a farmer named Jose del Bosque who organized a, a vaccine event. Uh, here he is talking about one of the big challenges uh, in getting workers vaccinated. There were a few that were reluctant to come because they were working somewhere else and they didn't want to miss a day of work, you know, because for a farm worker, a day is a day. It's, you know, a day of pay is, is important to them. So some of them are working and, and found it difficult to skip a day of work. Nadia, what did you hear from farmers uh, such as Jose about uh, vaccine access? They're very eager to get their workers and farm workers across the valley vaccinated. It's one of their biggest priorities right now. So they're working to secure more doses and set up different kinds of vaccination events and hopefully on the weekends as well in order for uh, farm workers to participate. As Jose said, it's really important for farm workers to be present every single day and work. A day of work is a day of pay, and a lot of people are not willing to sacrifice that. So employers are trying their best to get people uh, vaccinated. They're filling out paperwork on their behalf because a lot of people who have to get vaccinated have to fill out these consent forms and such. They're also working to disseminate that information in uh, languages that uh, they understand. So many farm workers don't speak Spanish, they speak indigenous languages. So they're trying to communicate that in as many ways as possible. 
Manuel Pastor, is the issue of getting time off or something as critical as a vaccine isolated to just farm workers, or is this a bigger piece of the puzzle to reaching equity in vaccine distribution? Well, what's happening with farm workers is part of a pattern that's happening with many low-income workers and communities of color around the state. If you were to say, let's devise a system in which the best way to get a vaccine is to make sure that you've got a high-speed internet connection, a browser that's got automatic refresh, a job where you can take three or four hours off in the middle of the day when an appointment pops up, and have a car to get there at any possible time. You've devised a system that's going to disadvantage low-income folks, people who have to show up for their jobs, uh, people like farm workers, but folks who are all sorts of other industries in our urban areas as well. And I think that one of the things that we need to do is to design with equity at the center rather than slapping our foreheads afterwards and saying, gosh, this didn't work out. It was highly predictable that it was not going to work out, particularly for the farm worker community we're talking about, but also for urban workers as well. Deanna, supervision of vaccine distribution in the state is transitioning to Blue Shield. Uh, what's your impression of how farm workers will be included in the new vaccine rollout? That's certainly to be determined. What we're hearing on the ground and through our call center is that workers want different options. Some are comfortable going to the workplace to get vaccinated, but many want to go to uh, locations that they are comfortable with within the community. They want to be able to go to the community centers or the nonprofits that they um, have historically, you know, been a part of or have heard from in the past. Or the clinic down the street where they know people that work there. Exactly. And that is one of the questions that we've been posing to the state is the fact that there are many community health clinics that are getting some vaccines from the federal government. But we are hearing on the ground from these community clinics that they're receiving very little vaccines. We got 50 vaccines for one week in one of the community health centers in the Coachella Valley. Sometimes they'll get 100. And so when we're talking about the broad number of farm workers in the state, the largest number in the entire country, we know that a lot more needs to be done. And it hasn't been an intentional strategy yet. We can't use a hard to reach community as an excuse. We need to be where they are. We're talking about vaccine access for farm workers with Diana Telefson Torres, Executive Director of the United Farm Workers Foundation. Also with us, Manuel Pastor, Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the University of Southern California, and Nadia Lopez, Latino Communities Reporter for the Fresno Bee. Now, Nadia, part of your reporting was an interview with 44-year-old Alma Martinez. She's a farm worker who received her first vaccine dose, and she explains that others are afraid. Um, here's some tape that you shared. Yo creo que sí, entre más personas tomen la vacuna y expliquen su experiencia con sus familiares. I think that as more people get the vaccine and explain their experience with their family members or with their friends, I think that more of that fear will be lost. And I, personally, with the people I've met and that I know, I've told them my experience, that I didn't feel what many said, like that you'll get a fever, that you're going to get sick as if you had COVID, and that maybe you'll get ill. Now, Nadia, misinformation is a big challenge in controlling the virus across uh, communities uh, all over the place. But what can you tell us uh, about what you heard in your reporting in terms of fears of the vaccine itself? Yeah, lots of different kinds of fears that people may hold, which include, you know, if uh, why are they going to get injected with a vaccine? Is it going to make them sick? Is it going to give them the virus, the safety of it? A lot of people don't have a lot of trust that this vaccine, because it is so new, that it will actually help them protect them against COVID. So when I spoke to Alma, she was very upfront with me about what she's been hearing from other people in her community, even though she herself did not express any hesitation or fear, many people around her did. So she was actively working to dispel some of those rumors, specifically because she also didn't experience any symptoms after receiving her vaccine. And a lot of people also felt that that was a concern. Hearing that from your neighbor, hearing that from a community leader, hearing that from a trusted individual really does help inform people about what the vaccine does. 
Deanna, how has the United Farm Workers Foundation been engaging with members regarding COVID education so that fear isn't a factor? What we have found is that many individuals are uninsured right throughout the years. 13% had never been to a doctor in their life. And so not only are we looking at undocumented status, we're looking at not having any type of medical support. And so it's really important that we address those questions that are asked that are very practical. If I don't have insurance, am I going to have to pay? Well, no, this is free. And no, it does not require legal status. You can get this. But often it's three or four touches, right, where we're having the same conversations with individuals until they feel comfortable. I'm going to say just regarding the vaccine confidence. So we're going to call it confidence rather than hesitancy, because when we did a recent survey over text message, we had over 10,000 farm workers who three out of four of them said that they were very willing or willing to get a vaccine as soon as it was made available to them. Manuel, and I understand that the public charge rule has come up when it comes to farm workers. Can you briefly explain what public charge is and how that factors into this process? Well, the public charge rule is a rule that was put in place in a forceful way by the Trump administration. And essentially, it says that if you are undocumented and you access any kind of public services, if there's ever a path to legalization, that your use of public services will be held against you and block your path to legalization. And so that's a deep concern for people who have uncertain legal status, but anticipate that a comprehensive reform or any kind of reform might wind up including farm workers. So along with the general fear of engaging with authorities, there's this very particular fear of the public charge rule. And we have already seen that mixed status families have not been tapping into benefits that their kids are entitled to, even if those kids are U.S. citizens, because they're worried that their kids taking advantage of this will wind up uh, creating problems for them later on. This is a public health emergency. And it's such a public health emergency. This kind of public charge rule needs to be turned around. Uh, we need an executive order to get rid of it so that people lose their fear of engaging with authorities. Deanna, Senator Alex Padilla has introduced a bill that would create a path to citizenship for essential workers. I'm wondering, would legislation on this and, and maybe in other areas, what would that mean for farm workers in terms of health and safety on the job? Certainly the issue of legal status and making sure that essential workers like farm workers have immigration status. They've certainly earned it given that they're feeding every single individual in this state and country. When we're talking about farm workers having fear of not being able to put food on their table if they take a day off or two because they're feeling ill due to the vaccine, it's very important that we have policies in place that are also enforced, I must add, that allow farm workers to be able to take the time off if they contract COVID-19. And I must say that the systemic racism that has existed with farm worker policies where they have been excluded for decades from federal um, labor rights and have been excluded at many state levels from very basic rights that other workers have is unacceptable. And we're seeing if they're truly essential, then let's not just say it, put it in writing, and enforce those policies that we put in place. Manuel Pastor, I know you were part of the recovery task force created by Governor Gavin Newsom. Agriculture, I mean, surely a critical industry. Um, so where are all the disconnects happening to provide the necessary support for these workers? It's obvious from the beginning of the vaccine rollout, that with the kind of way we were relying on online appointments, et cetera, the kind of inequities that have popped up would pop up. So what I'm hoping is that we finally put equity at the center and begin to think ahead. And by that, I mean the tremendous economic damage that has been done to poor communities in California is almost impossible to describe. You know, we've got a state where the wealthy have continued to be wealthy. Those who make more than $100,000, $150,000 a year have been able to maintain their income and work via Zoom, and that those who are at the bottom have been suffering tremendous economic dislocation. And we need to get ahead of that 
with the kind of repair programs and support programs that are going to be necessary. That's Diana Tellefson Torres, Executive Director of the United Farm Workers Foundation, Manuel Pastor, Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the University of Southern California, and Nadia Lopez, Latino Communities Reporter for the Fresno Bee. My thanks to all three of you. Great being with you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, I don't know about you, but one of the ways I'll know that life in L.A. is getting back to normal is when I see film crews all over the place getting back to work. Find out why that is going to be the norm in Hollywood before you know it. That's next when Take Two continues. Stay with us. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. Ami Martinez. Hollywood's plotting a major return to production in L.A., but new movie releases may not stay in theaters long. Some studio execs have hinted those short theatrical windows of the COVID-19 era are here to stay. It's time to go on the lot. Stick your head out and yell. You want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. As usual, our guide is Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. Now, Rebecca, to borrow a phrase from my doppelganger, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, can you smell what Hollywood is cooking? And that's home cooking, too, because California is making movies. So what's in the works and why now? I do often confuse you with The Rock, so good Understandable. that you pointed that out. Yes, yes. Um, well, the California Film Commission says that there are 22 feature films that have been selected for state tax credits. 11 of them are studio films. 11 of them are indie films. They're a really broad mix. There's a, a universal uh, remake of, of Scarface, which was written by the Coen brothers. There's a Sammy Davis Jr. biopic. Um, Eva Longoria is directing the Cheetos origin movie of uh, <laughs> Flame and Hot. And there's a, a uh, Reese Witherspoon produced adaptation of the book Ashley's War. So a real, a real range. So what do they need to do to qualify and why does that matter? Well, they need to provide wages to California workers and payments to in-state vendors. Um, and this particular batch accounts for about $430 million in qualified spending. So that's Wages to below-the-line workers, um, and uh, that is going to be about 2,500 crew people, oh, wow. 695 cast members. There'll also be background actors, and then post-production jobs like visual effects, editing, etc. All right, that's cool. Now, uh, you know, whenever those films are ready for theaters, Rebecca, they might not be there for long as they used to be. Or why not? Well, uh, two big studio execs this week gave statements indicating that some of the changes we saw to the film industry due to the pandemic are apt to become permanent. Um, both Disney CEO Bob Chapek and Viacom CBS CEO Bob Bakish have suggested that they might shrink the exclusive period when their films play in theaters, even in a post-vaccination economy. They say consumers have gotten used to this new normal and that you can't go back to the way things used to be. Rebecca, last year, Warner Brothers announced that their entire 20 20- 2021 release schedule was going to be streamed on HBO Max. And I think uh, Christopher Nolan, if he didn't own Pearls, he was definitely clutching some. If he if, <laughs> you know. Are they to blame for this or is this just where the industry would be headed no matter what? 
Well, studios have wanted to shrink these windows for years, and it was actually universal way back early in the pandemic that started experimenting with it and ultimately cutting deals with the theater chains where they gave theaters a portion of their uh, video-on-demand earnings. Each studio is really pursuing its own model uh, based on whether, like Disney, they have a streaming service they're trying to boost or what types of movies they have. Uh, but there's no question the landscape of the business has been permanently changed by COVID. I like having the choice, Rebecca. I mean, I'm still going to choose to go to a theater whenever possible, when when it's safe to do so. But, you know, I kind of like having the choice. I mean, I'm, I'm the consumer. I should have those to, those choices. Well, you're winning um, <laughs> because the theater and the theater owners are are losing, I would say. They have, had made the case that you really need to preserve these long windows in order to sort of save the specialness of movies and that uh, for years they were able to sort of keep that in place. But they lost all of their bargaining power when the pandemic closed theaters. We're talking to Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. Now, in case you missed it, uh, and looking at the ratings, uh, you likely did miss it, uh, this past Sunday were the Golden Globes. Now, Rebecca, I'm going to borrow another famous phrase, this time from Marketplace's Kai Rizdal. Let's do the numbers. Yeah, we'd be playing that that womp womp music uh, <laughs> for the Golden Globes. For the Golden Globes, it's uh, there were 6.9 million viewers. That's a 63 percent drop from last year, the lowest rating ever um, in the demographic ages 18 to 49. The last time the show's ratings were this bad, it was 2008, which was during the writer strike when it was not a telecast; it was a press conference. Um, and this comes just as NBC has signed an eight-year, $480 million deal uh, to broadcast the show. And there were problems with it. There were techni- technical screw-ups. And then the show came in the midst of this uh, sort of scandal around the Hollywood Foreign Press Association coverage in the L.A. Times around allegations of corruption and publishing the, the fact that they have no black voters. Now, on that, on, on the lack of black voters, a member of the Hollywood Foreign Press gave a TV interview that I think really highlights why they haven't had black voters. So what did she say? Well, on uh, Australia Today, Jenny Cooney was asked about this and why, you know, the HFPA had not done anything about black representation And she said the organization really considers itself a diverse group because of its global makeup, because there are Mm. a lot of members from non-European nations, members from India, members from the Philippines. So they didn't consider it a problem that they had no black members. Um, Yeah. And it's a little bit crazy. Oh, it's hard to believe. 2021. Yeah, it's hard to believe. But, uh, you know, considering the news that just came out a couple of hours ago, now it's not. Rebecca, what's that story? Yeah, this is, uh, again, from the LA Times uh, publishing a piece today that last July, uh, the HFPA then president, Lorenzo Soria, brought a motion to the board to hire a diversity consultant. Now, this last July, remember, was in the midst of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement after uh, the police killing of George Floyd. Pretty much every company and organization in the country was examining this issue. But yeah. when the HFPA did, they ultimately decided not to hire this uh, consultant um, and uh, with members voting against it, saying they want to review other candidates. Uh, it's unclear if they ever really did. Wow. Well, you know. <laughs> now this stuff comes out, and now they've got egg on their face. So we'll see if they'll actually uh, fix it. Uh, Rebecca, you got a piece uh, going online later today in the Hollywood Reporter titled "Titled Racist Sexist Classic." What's that story all about? Well, I looked at the ways that studios are grappling with the issue of content in their archives that is racist or sexist or reflects some bias that was publicly acceptable in the area in the era in which it was created but it's now understood to be offensive. So for instance, Disney's decision to put a content warning label on some episodes of The Muppet Show when they added the show to Disney Plus last month, or Warner Media's decision to add a video introduction to Gone with the Wind on HBO Max that discusses the way the film romanticizes slavery and reflects stereotypes in its African-American characters. Yeah, and it gets to the heart of conversations that a lot of people are having about whether certain things should even exist for people to see or should they be scrubbed from history. And, And there seemed to be a debate so, you know, some people were saying, look, you know, if you, if you have these things in front of these uh, these works, then they're OK because they could be teaching tools. 
Yeah, there's this sort of conversation about do you get rid of it entirely or do you try to contextualize it? So, for instance, there have been a lot of TV shows removed from streaming services because they have blackface in them. Um, then there's the example of there's a Mad Men episode that has blackface in it that the uh, producer, Lionsgate, added an introduction, a little uh, card to it pointing out that the whole point of the episode was to talk about racism in the year this show took place. And they've left this uh, episode up for that reason. So they're attempting to give some some context for the inclusion of the blackface. Um, But but it's yeah, it's an ongoing debate. Yeah. And considering, Rebecca, you know how you you write that, uh, you know, streaming services or at least for 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 most of them that are coming up online now, you know, the reason why people subscribe is because of the library, the catalog of all the stuff from the past that people love watching. But if that past has problems or is problematic, then what do you do? Right. I mean, it was interesting to me, you know, even Disney Plus, which I thought everybody subscribed to because of The Mandalorian, only about 20 percent of what people are watching on Disney Plus is the stuff that's original to the streaming service. Most of it is Disney's huge library on on HBO Max only 10% of it is the stuff that's original to HBO Max most of it is the library for Warner Media so these library titles are hugely important to the bottom lines of these companies but they are kind of landmines for the kind of bias that was just uh, endemic to yeah. pop culture for the last hundred years one of the things I like uh, one person you spoke to said you can still enjoy the past while you're criticizing it yeah, that that was Jacqueline Stewart, the TCM host. And TCM has a series launching tomorrow um, called Classics Reframed, where they sort of deal with this directly and with some intros by their hosts. It's really well done. That's Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. You can follow her on Twitter at that Rebecca. Rebecca, thanks a lot. Thanks, Ed. All right, what's your guilty pleasure podcast? Well, if there's a podcast that gives you pleasure, you shouldn't feel guilty about liking it. Now, that aside, the odds are the podcast topic that you secretly love is probably loved by all of your friends, too. And that's not a guess. That's a verifiable stat. Find out what that is when Take Two continues in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Parole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of congee, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. In Limerick Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Martinez. True crime, it's a subject you can bank on to tell compelling stories that will bring in an audience. True crime is so bankable that this past week, Saturday Night Live made fun of how much of a guilty pleasure it's become. I'm gonna watch a murder show, murder show. I'm gonna watch a murder show. Netflix, Showtime, HBO, and Daylight. No other media platform knows this better right now than podcasts. That success podcasters have hit on with true crime is something that Nick Kwa explores in the latest episode of his podcast, Servant of Pod, from LAist Studios. Uh, welcome back, Nick. Hey, how's it going? All right. Now, I mean, it, it, it is something that is a guilty pleasure for a lot of people. So I'm really excited that you're diving into this. So first, tell us about who you spoke with and why. So this week, I spoke with two people. Rebecca Lavoie, uh, who's a true crime writer herself and a host of a true crime review podcast called Crime Writers On, and Jonklin Hill, who's a senior producer at WMU, and she's hosting a new series called Through the Cracks, which comes out of that station and is broadly within the true crime genre. So I called them up because as we come to the end of this season of Servant of Pod, I wanted to get one good shot at having a conversation about the state of true crime and podcasting, and also to get into some of the fundamentals about why the genre is so appealing, why it works. Uh, true crime, as you've noted, is a huge pillar in the podcast ecosystem, and as the SNL skit references, just about every <laughs> yeah. other form of media at this point. And I feel like I've been grappling with the question and idea of true crime for as long as I've been writing about podcasts. All right, now before we get into your discussion with uh, Hill and Lavoy, uh, let's provide some brief background on the genre. So what's the history of true crime in podcasts, and how has it evolved over the years? 
you can really tie that explosion to Serial, honestly. Um, of course, there's been a couple of independent podcasts doing true crime-related things for years up to that point. But Serial really cracked open the attention not just for podcasting, but also for true crime podcasting in specific. And since then, it's been 0 to 60, 0 to 120, whatever you want to use a metaphor. And it's the genre that powers a lot of companies at this point, whether it's Parcast, which is owned by Spotify, or something like Wondery, which now is owned by Amazon. Now, speaking of its history, uh, Lavoie touched on the gender divide within the genre and why she thinks women in particular are drawn to true crime. In the long, sordid history of true crime, which has been forever, um, it has been a, a strong divide between the male, quote, literary true crime writers mm. and reporters, like Truman Capote, or uh, really anybody who wrote an article about any kind of mm. crime. And then you had, when women did it, they were relegated to paperbacks in mm. airport bookstores. And Rule, it would be a good example of that, the sort of juggernaut. I mean, she owned the true crime book brand for decades, and it was firmly marketed as trash. So, I mean, I think there really is something there, sort of the gendered stuff. And, you know, I think the reason why uh, perhaps women like it so much is because it's like the cycle now. We've been told, like, this is a woman's thing. And the thing about it is in that clip I played earlier, that song, uh, Murder Show, Murder Show, that SNL skit, the whole point of it was that, uh, you know, a woman sitting on the couch, her boyfriend, her husband leaves for to, to go somewhere, <laughs> and all of a sudden she turns on the murder show. And then all the, the female characters of SNL join in on the song watching all these murder shows. So walk us through the clip that we heard, though, from Lavoy, Nick. Uh, and did Hill have anything to add? Yeah, so I think it's sort of useful to take like a couple of steps back and just kind of just acknowledge that like true crime, the sort of substance of it, the 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 topical nature of it, it's pervasive beyond what we typically talk about when we talk about true crime, right? When we talk about true crime, we think about a murder show, like one of those Netflix shows, or we talk about these podcasts. But so what Lavoie in particular is drawing attention here is within this this sort of bucket of what we talk about when we talk about true crime, and that there's a sort of a divide in that economic history of that genre. So on the one hand, you have these sort of quote-unquote prestige like magazine feature type stories. You know, you find them in the New Yorker, the, the Atlantic, whatever, usually written by men that don't typically get referred to in the popular shorthand as true crime, even though they are true crime. And then you have this sort of history, as Lavoie sort of refers to, of like airport paperback stuff that's typically dominated by women, both as producers and as consumers. Uh, and, you know, at least when it comes to like the book and magazine publishing industry, those things in the past you know, that that style of, of true crime product tends to get marketed differently uh, than what one would consider quote-unquote high art, while the other one is quote-unquote trashy. So that kind of sets the stage for the present, where it, when the quote-unquote trashy side gets expanded quite a bit for a number of structural and cultural reasons, it's it's part of our popular culture like ecosystem, or, or the air we breathe, but it still retains this kind of gendered historical roots. And and that seems to square with, with Hill's assessment of the situation. We're talking to Nick Kwa, host of Servant of Pod and founder of the Hot Pod newsletter. Now, you know, Hill also talked about the embarrassment around the genre and about being a true crime fan. So Jean-Claude talks about this in this clip. She basically unpacks that, you know, guilty pleasure aspect of true crime. So my embarrassment is kind of twofold because one... True crime is something that's considered trashy by a lot of people. Hmm. Like, I will watch the documentary about a serial killer in a heartbeat. Shows about cults and kind of that kind of thing. Hmm. And then the other side of embarrassment, for me, it's just sort of like, ooh, how do I feel about the fact that our criminal justice system is so flawed and I'm finding like, mm. quote unquote, entertainment in it. Like those are two things that I'm constantly battling within myself, despite the mm. fact that if you turn on my TV right now, it will be on investigation discovery. And Nick, the other part of it, too, is that uh, usually people have died and, and it's tragic and, and families are, are ruined. Um, you know, they have horrible trauma for, for the rest of their lives. But as she says, you know, there is this kind of embarrassment about it because in a lot of those cases, uh, you know, there is a flawed criminal justice system involved. So how does she grapple with this idea of finding entertainment? And did Lavoie mention this feeling as well? Yeah. So part of how she grapples with it honestly comes down to making choices and how you relate to those choices when you kind of consume that kind of thing. So right now, today, like we are really rich with choices uh, in true crime media, right? You know, uh, put on Netflix, Hulu, whatever. There's stuff there. 
podcasts, magazine journalism, it's all there. And there's stuff that's really thoughtful about the frame that they use. And then there's the stuff that's not that's not so thoughtful in the way that they sort of approach uh, true crime and and the sort of uh, the very sad, very, very horrible things that they're that they're uh, turning into basically entertainment. And in this instance, you know, being thoughtful is basically being cognizant about the biases and the shape of where the narrative is coming from. Is the story taking like the police at their word? Is it too gratuitous in talking about somebody's death? Does it rely too much uh, bias um, in, uh, in, in favor of those in power? Uh, and Jonglin Hill in particular, she talked about how she likes work that centers uh, on the experiences of, of people and the victims, reclaiming their humanness and, and sort of not just kind of chalking that up to another sort of number <laughs> mm-hmm. in, a, in an episode list. And, you know, Lavoy feels much the same way, but, but she's sort of a little bit more kind of, um, you know, accommodating about this idea of the blurred line between entertainment and, and journalism sometimes. Nick, ultimately, why do you think true crime is so popular and entertaining? Oh, man, how much time do you have? Um... So, so my my quick answers. I'll just give you like the very limited, uh, one or two out of the long list of answers. And it's not particularly novel. And it's been offered by all sorts of people who spend a lot of time, more than me, studying the genre. But my sense is that it's it's really about the inherent dramatic structure embedded in crime stories. It just lends really well to like catalyzing event, mystery, process, resolution, denouement. Um, and it's also about the stakes in the sense that uh, it touches on the most fundamental stuff that moves us psychologically, which is life and death. Um, you put those two things together, it's going to be inherently interesting. You know what the real true crime is, is that my time with <laughs> Nick Kwa is over. Nick is the host of the LA Studios podcast, Servant of Pod. New episodes are out every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. Nick, thanks a lot. Thank you. I got to go to the supermarket right now. I'm going to be standing in front of the butcher case going, murder show, murder show. <laughs> oh, my gosh. If you missed any part of Take Two, just head to wherever you get your podcast. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on Twitter, at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A. Martinez LA. That's at A. Martinez LA. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two back tomorrow at 2. Uh, Marketplace is next. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.